Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. Welcome to See Uncovered. Today joining me is John Brain Moore. He's an organizational theorist, management consultant, and author, best known first book, Crossing the Chasm. How are you today? You know, I'm great. Thank you very much, Ashley, for having me on your show. Of course. I want to learn more a little bit about you. Can you give us an insight about who you are? Well, you know, so I'm 75 years old. I started life uh, in Portland, Oregon. I was a liberal arts student and ended up getting actually an advanced degree, a PhD in English literature. And I was going to be an English professor. And in fact, I got a job at a small college in Michigan. But four years into it, uh, our family really felt the roots on the West Coast. We really came back. And so I actually left that career, which, and I was ready to get tenure. So it was a pretty important decision. But we just felt family first. So we came back to California and I got a job in a software company. I knew nothing about software, but I was helping them with their training programs. That kind of evolved and I sort of became part of the president's staff just to try to be helpful. And this is an important lesson, I think, for people as you're pursuing career. I had no expertise in their business, but I think there was a, a man named Don Parr who I think looked at me and said, I'm going to mentor this guy and I'm going to help him. And I was a learning machine. I mean, I really did want to learn. So that was great. So that led to the president saying, well, I want that guy. So then I was the president. And then I realized, you know, I don't think I should just be a staff guy. I should either make it or learn it. In tech in particular, the people that matter either make the software or the hardware or they sell it. So I, well, the making it wasn't going to be an option. So I decided I would sell it. Now, it turned out I was teaching the Salesforce the presentation. And I was really good at this presentation. Frankly, I was better than they were. So I thought, well, selling, how hard can it be? Well, it turns out I was really good at opening and I was not very good at closing. So I actually, as a salesperson, I had sales jobs in many places. I never made quota. That is a bad quality in a salesperson, let's be clear. But what I did find out was I was good at marketing. And so that led ultimately to me helping, joining a marketing uh, consultancy and that was where I was able to see, it was, a, by the way, it was a terrific marketing consultant. It was the number one high-tech marketing firm in the world at the time. It was right in Silicon Valley, right next near my house. So I was very lucky, but I joined it. And then very quickly, I, this is what I was gifted at doing. And I was able to see the patterns in the client. We had lots of clients and I got to sit in on many, many client meetings. And I saw this pattern in the success failure of clients where they would have this initial success and then this period where everything would go the wrong way. And we kept on saying, well, they did this wrong or they did that wrong. And I began to think, wait a minute, this is too many people having the same problem. So that's what ended up, we ended up calling the chasm. The whole idea behind the chasm was early adopting people will go toward your new innovation, but the majority of people will hang back and wait and see. And there's this period in the middle you've got to get across. And so the whole book, Crossing the Chasm, was about, well, how would you do that? And and I was a good writer. I was an English professor. I was a good writer. That book came out in 1990. It has sold between one and two million copies worldwide. We're not quite sure how many. It's still in print. It just happened to nail it. But I was drawing on all of the knowledge that that agency had. It wasn't just me. It was the collective knowledge of that agency. So, and then that led, once you write a book, people ask you to do speeches. 
So, and I, I love to talk, as you can see. So then I would give speeches. And then somebody would come up to you at the end of a speech and say, that's very interesting. I think you should give that talk to my company. Okay, I'll come in and give that talk to your company. And then some of those companies will say, you know, we're going to implement this plan, but we need you to help us. So that started a consulting business. And I helped form three separate firms. And they're, oh, by the way, when you do the consulting, one last thing, you find out your book isn't as good as you thought it was. There's lots of things in the real world that just aren't in the book. Yeah. So you start building up this sort of pile of, well, let me tell you about this. Well, let me tell you about that. And pretty soon you realize, oh my God, there's a second book. So seven books later, <laughs> this pattern has played out all my life, three consulting firms. But always, I think the spirit behind the whole thing was kind of going back to being an English professor. How do you help people think through problems in their own minds with their own issues, but using frameworks that can be good guides? So that's the thumbnail of the history of Jeff Moore. For your books, is there a certain demographic that you felt were more in fear of listening to? Was it companies? Was it individuals? All the books have a big bias to the technology sector. I would say that 90% of my clients over the last 35 years have been in tech. So it's a big bias there. But the first book in particular was written for product managers because the product manager at that time was the person who was really challenged to get their product across the chasm. Because yeah. the sales force would sell it once it got there, but the sales force didn't want to pick up a weak product or a product that didn't have a market yet mm-hmm. and then put all their energy behind creating a market. And that wasn't their, they didn't perceive that as their job. So the product manager in high tech was the target audience. Where did you really get the idea, I should write this book, and how did you get started in doing that process? Well, of course, I'm a writer by trade anyway, so that's part of it. But what, there was actually a funny event. The firm I was with, didn't have any what they call practice manuals. And they just gotten a big investment from a big uh, um, consulting firm. And the consulting firm said, we'd like to see your practice manuals. Of course, there weren't any. So I thought, well, I'll just try to write something. So I wrote something up and shared it with the partners. And they said, well, you know, this is more you than us. So I said, really? Okay. So then I took that to a literary agent. And he said, well, this is a manual. I don't think you want to publish a manual, but, but there's a chapter in here I think we could really make something out of. And the chapter was called Crossing the Chasm. So that's where the book came from. For our listeners who don't know, what is a chasm? Yeah, so there's a thing called the technology adoption life cycle, which says if you introduce a disruptive innovation into any community, Mm -hmm. the community will segregate into these various adoption strategies. So the early adopters, there are two classes of early adopters. The technology enthusiast is going, whoa, this is really cool stuff. This is crypto what? This is quantum what? And they're just going to attract it to it. They'll just like want to play with it. Yeah. And then there are the visionaries who are going, whoa, this could change the world. We could really change the world with this stuff. And they will make a big bet way before anybody else will. Mm-hmm. So those, we call them the early adopters. The next strategy is called the pragmatist strategy, which is, look, if this is going to help my business be better, I want to use it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that it's ready for prime time yet. So I'm going to watch. I'm going to go to seminars. I'm going to keep tabs on it. But until I see other people like me doing it, I don't think I'm going to do it. So now you have this problem how do you get references? And the early adopters are not good references for the pragmatists because the pragmatists look at those, they say, those people are crazy. So that doesn't work. So the whole strategy of crossing the chasm was find some pragmatists in pain who are saying, look, I've got a problem. I've tried all the conventional solutions. They're not really working. Mm-hmm. This weird thing, it's weird. It's not proven. But if it worked, it would change my life. Yeah. I'll take a chance on it. And then what you had to do, we called it the whole product. For that, 
we call it use case. For that use case, for that customer, you had to nail it. You had to do whatever it took to make sure that they got a complete solution to their problem because as soon as they did, they tell their friends. And that means everybody else in their market segment that has that exact same use case. So they talk to each other and they have the same problem. They say, hey, there's a vaccine. <laughs> you know, this is what you want to take. And then all of a sudden you're on the other side of the chasm with a market that believes in you, that supports you, that gives you enough income that you can now chart your own future as opposed to keep on looking for venture funding. That was what crossing the chasm was all about. I mean, that, to this day, I feel like plays such a role in how people are looking at business and talking with people. Do you feel that things have changed since writing that book or are these models still in play? It's really interesting. So the, what I've learned about, I would say that up until the turn of the century, mm-hmm. the model just worked and it was tech and it, it was a fit was just like this. Yeah. What happened at the beginning of this century, though, is interesting. Consumer computing came out of nowhere. Google, Facebook, the whole Amazon retail, all this high volume and mobile computing and Wi-Fi and all this stuff. And what happened was you now had a second kind of technology landscape where basically you could go direct to the consumer and they could try your product without any risk. Yeah, That was the big thing about the chasm, the, the risk. So I think what I now would say about crossing the chasm, in fact, I would say it about my life's work, it's a really good fit for what we call B2B, business to business markets. It's also pretty good for B2B to C, meaning I'm a software company selling to a business, but my software helps them with their consumer. I would say for direct B2C, there are better models than this one. Um, That would make sense. In your opinion, what are the biggest challenges startups face? when creating a business? You know, I think a couple of thoughts. One is you tend to be thinking about yourself. The one thing you cannot afford to do when you start a business is think about yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to start with the customer or start with the technology. And in fact, in the venture, I, by the way, I I spend my Mondays in a venture firm. I've been associated with a venture firm since 1998. So I've seen this play out a lot. Yeah. So what we like to fund often is what we call a two-headed entrepreneur. One of them is the technology expert who just is doing something amazing. And the other is the more entrepreneurial business leader who will find the customer use case and then do the initial selling and really evangelizing. And they will lead the company both in the early market. So they have to have be able to resonate with visionaries, but they also will be, have to be able to run that crossing the chasm playbook yeah. to get to the other side. Do you think coronavirus has played a role in how businesses are marketing and trying to start up? And how do they bounce back? It's so interesting. You know, we thought the coronavirus would set business back. But the truth is, in the tech sector, it actually accelerated digital transformation. You know, more on Zoom, right? What a surprise. I would think there's a different problem going on right now, which is, and I spend time now mostly with large companies, not startups. So the large company problem is, how do I get my workforce to come back to work? Now, they've hired people, by the way, all over the world because the remote thing was, well, if I got there's a coding expert in Sioux Falls, you know, wherever, I'm happy to bring them in. Yeah. And now, how do you create team? How do you create cross-pollination of learning? Digital is not good for either one of those. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem at that level. Now, at the startup level, I'm just joining the board of a company that has been born remote and will probably stay remote. Mm-hmm. But they built a culture based on the idea that they are a remote company. Mm-hmm. And that I think that's an advantage for startups right now. I think you can play the remote card much more confidently than a big enterprise can. This is a side question I just thought to ask you. What is your opinion on 
the meta universe. And I know it has been talked about that one day we could be working together and the feeling of it. How do you feel that's going to play out? And do you think that is really substantial? Well, I may be the wrong demographic for this, Ashley. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still convinced that human beings are mammals. Mm-hmm. And mammals, I think, like to congregate. We like to get together. We like to hug each other, cuddle, whatever the heck it is. We like to hang out with each other. Yeah. And by the way, it's also, you know, there was a once there was the advertisement probably before your time where they were talking about how to do an a, a Reese's peanut butter cup. Well, the guy with the chocolate ran into the person with the peanut butter and they created the punny. But that kind of serendipity can only happen by people actually hanging out with each other. Yeah. And Hewlett Packard, which was the great company of my generation in the um, Bay Area, they had a philosophy called managing by wandering around. Literally, they would just kind of sit, go around the cubicle and they'd sit down and keep, how's it going? That sort of thing. I think we're going to need more of that. And so I think that's going to be important. Mm-hmm. As a new startup founder, I have felt that a lot of our workers are remote, but we haven't created those relationships where they get to know us as founders and trust us. And I feel like business is a lot about trust and people. And I want to see it shift back into where we were and I hope it does. So I was just at a very interesting offsite with, with a company called Salesforce. Uh-huh. And with a very long discussion about just what you said, because they have a culture, they call their culture Ohana, which is the Hawaiian word for family. And so there's a long discussion about we need to reconnect. Now, here's what they've decided. They don't think mandates work. They don't think you can say, hey, you have to come back to the office. Mm-hmm. Maybe Jamie Diamond, you know, in the financial district. Okay, but not for Salesforce. So what they've challenged their man, and they had 500 managers in the room. They said, look, you've got to find ways to reconnect with your people. And by the way, you can reconnect. They don't have to report to you. You can connect with anybody in our company and that will help. Mm-hmm. By the way, you can also, you don't have to connect to the office. You can connect at Starbucks. You can go hiking. You can do it. But you must reconnect to establish just what you said, to establish the human connection. Yeah, I 100% agree. I want to talk about your new book, The Infinite Staircase. Can you share what a little just about what that's about? Well, after writing seven books about trying to explain the mysteries of high tech, I decided, how about the mysteries of the universe? I mean, why not, right? Yeah. So, so basically, The Infinite Staircase is trying to say, look, How do we get from the Big Bang, which happened apparently about 13.8 billion years ago, Mm -hmm. to you and me talking on Zoom? How would you get from there to here without any sort of major miracles in between? How could that even possibly happen? And so that's kind of what they call a secular view of the universe. In other words, if you you say, look, I'm I'm not saying there's anything about religion that I want to repudiate, but if I put religion aside, how would you explain it? Mm -hmm. Because what I really wanted, the last part of the book is, so if you are going to use a secular view of the universe... What validates ethics? I mean, we're in the middle of an ethical crisis in our country. It's just obvious. And part of the problem is I don't think people know where ethics get. How do you validate or empower ethics if you're not religious? And a lot of the society is not. There might be spiritual, but they're not religious. And so where does that how does that work? And I wanted to really find a good grounding for that. So so this is a book about explaining the universe and kind of where we fit. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful for our students. And now I feel like in this day and age, a lot of people are kind of straying away from religion in our younger generation and finding a balance could be hard if you don't have that foundation. And would you have any advice for those? Would it be mentors? Would it be? I think think that mine, well, the one that worked for me, Marie and I started a practice called Transcendental Meditation back in the 60s. We practiced it all our lives. I think some kind of grounding spiritual experience, whether it's 
then they call it mindfulness meditation, yoga, prayer. I have no, it's not that the, the religious experience is not valid. For people who it's valid, it's great. But if you don't have that belief, you need to have something. And I think like there's also like the meditation apps. And the, I get a little worried about gamifying spirit. I don't think we should like, I, this is more serious than I think. So I think finding a place to get centered, I think it's really important to get centered and then to come to the world. And then the other thing I think is really helpful is to have a direction. So for me, the whole direction has always been be in service to. Mm-hmm. Now, be in service to what? Well, that's your choice. But every time I've tried to optimize life for my own stuff, I kind of screw it up. And every time I have to optimize it being in service to others, things work a lot better. So that, those are grounding points for me. I would say this: getting centered and then being in service to something that you think is worthy of being serviced to. That's kind of what we're trying to help our students find is that drive and passion before they get to college and they don't really know what to do is finding what you love in a way that you will be passionate about it and wanting to learn in college and not just skating by I think is where we're trying to get up for our students. And it's hard because they don't have that experience already before they go. So they don't really know where to look or turn. Totally get it. By the way, I entered college convinced I was going to be a math major. Mm-hmm. After one quarter, I went, well, how about a physics major? And after another quarter, I said, oh, maybe I'm an English major. Mm-hmm. And it turned out I was an English major. The thing I think we told our children is follow your heart and let everything else follow. And you're saying the same thing. I, I think people, If you come to college with an agenda that is not about becoming your best self, then you're probably going to waste time. And by the way, college these days is so expensive. If you don't know what you're getting from college, don't spend a lot of money on college, please. (laughs) Please. I mean, the good news is, by the way, junior colleges are, from the point of view of just getting the material, they're just as good. The first two years at a junior college... The students might not be as committed as they you would find at a more conventional college, but the curriculum's fine and the teachers are fine. So, you know, but I do think at some point you guys say, look, life, you know, it's not a dress rehearsal. We get this, this is it, this is it. So, you know, let's play the character that we want to play and let's get into the play that we believe in. Yeah. What does a day-to-day look like for you? Well, you're, you're looking at it. Yeah. You have so much <laughs> going on. So you know, the pandemic really did change my life. Now, I am getting out a lot more now. But I would say for the last three years, I've been doing this because I have an advisory practice now. So basically, people want to talk to me. And it used to be, well, I'd have to figure out, well, can I fly to them or do they fly to me or do we drive here? And I could maybe do one, maybe two a day, but mostly just one. Now it's like, no, do you have 10 o'clock, one o'clock? Would four o'clock be good for you? So I'm doing a lot of that. The thing is, at my age, I've got a lot of what they call pattern recognition. I mean, I've just seen a lot of rodeos. So it's like, okay, I think I know what's going on in your situation. And what's helpful with that is when people, so I, people use me as a sounding board. They say, hey, Jeff, here's what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? And I can say, well, mm, this looks good. But I don't think that's going to work. And it's not like I'm a guru. It's just like, okay, well, that was okay. And why don't you think that's going to work? Well, because blah, 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 blah. Oh, well, maybe you're right. So what they get out of it is they save the time of going down the wrong trail 
a fair amount. That's the biggest gift. And then they get a little, maybe a little bit more courage to make the bet that they were a little uncertain about, but it sounded to me like a really good bet. So that's how I am in service to them. Yeah. Well, is there been a tool or skill you could say has contributed to your success? I did a couple. One is I love people. So, and I think if you're going to be in a service profession, it's important that you that you care about the person in front of you. I think it may be the single most important success factor in the game. Because if you genuinely care, you'll probably figure out some way to be helpful. I'm good at frameworks. I'm good at abstracting patterns So and, and creating frameworks that are pretty easy to understand. Most people say about my books, particularly Crossing the Chasm and this, uh, the business book called Zone to Win, is, you know, you didn't say anything we didn't know but you really framed it really, really well. So it got really close. That's number two. And then three, I genuinely love to write. I will be writing, you know, when I leave the planet, I'll probably have a pen in my hand and you know, with my head like this. Uh, so I love to write. And I'm a good writer uh, in terms of just being clear. So I think those are the things. And when you do write, do you think of ideas when you're at a restaurant or when you're with family? Do you just write them, jot them down like you see in the movie? No, no, that's not me. I would say here's what happens with me. Mm-hmm. So first of all, but one of the good things about if you've meditated most of your life, when you get a good idea, you don't forget it. Yeah. Which is weird because if you don't have a quiet place to park your ideas, you will forget them. And you do have to write them down. But I would say here's a more typical thing that happens. I'll be in a situation. I'll go, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Oh, we're talking about this the wrong way. Okay. Then usually that ends up, I write blogs and I'm on LinkedIn with a blog. And so that's kind of cool. But then I'll typically people always want to give me speeches. So the next place it showed up, like crossing the chasm, I gave that speech for three years and it got better and better and better as you make it better and better. And then it became a book. Yeah. And I think in general, for me, speaking before writing, and also when you speak, people, the audience gives you feedback, like they go, <laughs> or they laugh or whatever. And then you're, it's like clues, Jeffrey, clues. So, so, right. And so as a result, you get a good dialogue. And I actually have a book. Actually, it's an open source book because uh, I put it in the open source, How to Teach a Writing Class. Basically, one of the keys to it is you want to divide up the class into groups of three to four people, and they should share the rough drafts before they hand them in and talk to each other about them and then do some more writing before it gets handed in because using others as a sounding board is how you make your writing better. I think. I agree. Lastly, I wanted to ask you and I asked everyone this, if you could give a piece of advice to a high school or college version of yourself, what would you tell him? Well, man, I think to thine own self be true. I mean, <laughs> it's like, thank you, Shakespeare. Uh, but the point is, you know, most people in high school, including me, were not very secure. You would kind of feel like you're faking it half the time. And you think there might be something there, but you're not quite sure what it is. And I think so part of it is be real with your heart. You don't have to be. I mean, it's hard to be real with other people sometimes, but be real with your heart and listen to your heart. And when your heart tells you something, try to follow it. Because usually your, your heart's a pretty good guide. And sometimes your mind, frankly, not so good. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for being on CEO Uncovered. I love learning a little bit about what you do and your story and your background. And I appreciate you talking to our high school students. Well, Ashley, thank you for having the privilege of doing so. Thanks for listening to CEO Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.